welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Good morning, Black Light listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, I have a very special guest um, that will be with us. His name is Vincent Scaraldi. Vincent has served as a commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation, commissioner of the New York City Department of Corrections, and the director of Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C. He has also been a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and co-founder of the Columbia University Lab, as well as the Center of Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the Justice Policy Institute. He has written extensively for outlets ranging from New York Times to the Marshall Project. He is currently the secretary of the Department of Juvenile Services in his home state of Maryland. So without further ado, Vincent, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sierra. Good morning. Good morning. So if you just tell us, give us a little bit more background. I know that was a short bio, but just like how you got started and like, what do you do for the criminal justice? So thank you for having me on. I started really when I was in college. I got an internship that turned into a job at a home for juvenile delinquent boys, kids that were caught up in the system. Uh, And it was actually a live-in job. So I went to work Sunday night at six o'clock and went home Friday night at six o'clock. And I loved it. It was the coolest job ever. Uh, I was young myself and I really connected with the young people in the facility. It wasn't a locked facility. The kids went out to school every day. We went out on trips and stuff. And, you know, from that point on, I was, you know, this was sort of early years of mass incarceration, 1980. Who knew that the, you know, prison population would grow eightfold since that time and the probation and parole population would grow fivefold so that millions and millions of people were under the maw of the system. And, you know, I went into nonprofits after that, the Center on Juvenile Criminal Justice, the Justice Policy Institute, and started fighting against mass incarceration before I went back into government and tried to fix things from the inside. Yeah. So ex- explain to us the difference between ma- like how mass incarceration started in the 80s and how it is now. And what do you think led to the modern day slavery is what I call it, because that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, it was, in my view, it was an over-racialized uh, 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 political move by the Nixon administration and, and the Republican Party that was developing its Southern strategy. Uh, there were a lot of protests, and Attica had happened, and, you know, uh, Kent State, Jackson State shootings of students. So the older generation was feeling very much that things were out of control. And the Nixon administration and, and the Republican Party sort of capitalized on that by politicizing poverty and crime in ways they really weren't before that. I mean, all of us have now grown up with the notion that criminal justice policies are a very, very political act. Before the 1970s, they really weren't. And we had an incarceration rate that was similar to other countries, and that was about one-fifth of what our incarceration rate is now. Um, and that once that happened, once Nixon declared the war on drugs, which his aides Ehrlichman and Haldeman have both said was overtly racialized and overtly political, um, the prison population grew every single year from 1972 to 2007. And we had eight times as many people in prison uh, and about five times as many people on probation and parole in 2007 than we did back in the 70s. So uh, it was devastating. I don't think anybody could have anticipated how voracious our appetite to imprison and surveil would be. Uh, certainly, I didn't in 1980 as my little house parent that I was. It's a really been an appalling to watch it uh, as as a person, both that was an advocate, a researcher, and ultimately that ran some of these systems. So tell me what, now you worked for that system and then you worked against that system. So tell me what made, like, what did you see when you worked for that system 
And what made you want to be on the side of advocating to change that system? Yeah. So I came in, you know, I, I did my little three years as a house parent, but then I went into nonprofits for 20 years and I never really thought I'd work for the government. Uh, the system in Washington, DC, the juvenile system was just so terrible that in 2005, Mayor Williams, Anthony Williams hired me to run it. I think it was a Hail Mary pass on his part. I was the 20th director in 19 years there, right? More than one a year. In the previous year, there were four directors of that department and staff were beating the kids up. They were sexually assaulting them. There was drugs all over the place. You walked through the units and they smelled like marijuana. Kids were testing positive more frequently after they had been in my facility for a month than they were before they got in there, right? So that meant it was easier to score in my facility than on the streets at the District of Columbia, which is a pretty high bar to jump over. Yeah. So, you know, if I, if I had to say, what did I learn? I came in with a lot of attitude about my staff. You know, I was, I was, I was charging in on my white horse as, my, as a white savior and thinking that the staff were just evil, mean people. And there were definitely some evil, mean people there who did really terrible things to kids. But a lot of these folks, they were just trying to figure out how to survive the crazy situation that everybody was in, not just the kids, but they were in it too. And, and that was a learning experience for me. I, I, was, I was a little high and mighty, still sometimes am, tried to understand it from, the, from various uh, viewpoints, from the kids, from the staff, from their families. And once I was able to do that, you know, we were able to cut the population dramatically. Conditions improved dramatically. I think staff, I, several staff came to me and said, I would never have thought of bringing my family member to work. I was ashamed of where I work. And now we used to have, we used to have events where staff could bring their kids. I mean, literally bring their kids into our correctional facility for barbecues. My kids used to go up all the time. And so I think there's a, there is a way to do this right, to do this better. Uh, but that way includes way fewer people incarcerated, way fewer people under supervision, and maybe for some populations, abolition of supervision. Some populations, if we just gave the money to the communities and tried to figure out how to achieve public safety, I think they'd do it better than hiring a bunch of civil service corrected bureaucrats to do it. Yeah, and that's, that's so true. And I'm glad you brought up uh, about the staff, because that's what I, that's the main complaints that I hear. Cause I work directly with people that are incarcerated and I am the prison jail coordinator. And so I hear a lot about how they're being treated by staff. And so I'm currently working on like an abuse of power campaign that has been going on inside of our prison uh, with the use of A99s. I don't know what y'all call them up there, but that's basically conspiracy to bring in drugs or a conspiracy to put a hit out on somebody. And so, you know, I just hear that the staff is so, so ugly to them and they feel like they bring their problems from home to the correctional facility and take it out on them. Yep. And so just trying to understand how we can balance that to where the staff feels safe and they feel like they can actually have a relationship with those incarcerated because it feels like down south that they don't want them to have any type of relationship. They want them to go in there, do their job, and treat them as if they're criminals. And so that that's that's that makes the environment really tenuous, contentious for the both of them because the staff doesn't feel safe and the people incarcerated doesn't feel safe. And then you have some staff members that are literally provoking people. And so how did you figure out how to balance the staff? the people incarcerated and the families and then how were you able to change that around to where it was more family friendly because that's really important to yep. make sure that everybody has a connecting working relationship and that it's not just because you're incarcerated we have to treat you and your family any kind of way yep no uh, what a great question so i mean we there there have to be some rules and you have to get your system to enforce those rules but so like if people are taking drugs, you can urine test your staff. At least I could in DC and, and certainly you have to hold people accountable. If they're taking drugs, you have to try to find out who's bringing the drugs in. But I think too many systems lean completely on enforcement and forget the part about engagement. And so we did, you know, did urine test some staff and some staff got fired, but that was never going to do it. 
that was never going to stop the drugs from coming in. What, what stopped the drugs from coming in is when staff and families bought into the notion that this was a place where we should be helping kids turn their lives around, not just punishing them, not just sticking them in solitary confinement, not just shackling them and all those terrible things that happened in there. Once that happened, we literally started to have nobody testing positive, no kids and no staff, nobody testing positive for drugs. But more than just that, no use of solitary. We, we abolished solitary. Uh, kids started to go home on home passes, be with their families, come back. Kids were orchestrating their own group sessions about when issues would occur. Instead of just throwing punches, they'd sit down and talk it out. I mean, once we started to empower the staff and the young people and families, there was a family group called Parent Watch that started coming into the facility. We actually gave them office space in the facility. And that was very controversial at first. The staff didn't like it. They didn't want anybody meddling in our business, right? Even though it's these parents' kids, right? Became right. our business. They had a lot of attitudes about the parents thinking that, you know, you're the problem here, not the solution. And bit by bit, though, what would happen was some big kid would start to go off on one of the living units. And you know who was able to calm him down? One of the moms. One of the moms would come walking in and say, come on, Anthony, you need to take it easy now. And all of a sudden, staff aren't getting hurt, right? <laughs> because right. they don't have to try to take Anthony down. And Anthony's pretty big, right? You right. know, that was a real scenario, right? Not a real name, but a real scenario. And so then staff and parents, many of whom came from the same neighborhoods, like these folks knew each other, they started to feel like there's an alliance now and the kids were the job. Helping the kids became the job. And that, that happened in, in D.C. with the juvenile system. And similarly, that happened with the probation department in New York. The parents and families started to come in. They started to talk about how badly they were treated by staff. Staff had to hear that. And be, after the defensiveness ebbed a little bit, they said, yeah, you're probably right. We, do, we don't treat you guys well when you come in here, and we need to partner up because we're in their, we're in their lives for this much time, whereas you're in their lives forever. And so if we want to solve the crime problem, right, if we want to help people turn their lives around, it can't just be do what your probation officer says or I'll send you to jail, which for too many places, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, and they feel like punitive punishment is correcting when punitive punishment will never correct. It's trying to find the root of the cause of what's going on. And when you are dealing with children, a lot of children are coming from single parent family homes. A lot of them don't have mentors and role models, especially the, the children, the boys don't have male role models. And so that tends to, it's hard when you're growing up as a boy and you don't have a father figure in your life. And so that was really key that instead of working against one another, everybody worked together. And so that's why you were able to achieve that. So do you believe that, or what do you think is the, is it the training that they're receiving? The reason why they feel like they have to go in there and just have this attitude as if they're nothing, they committed a crime. You know, they are the worst of the worst. Is it from the training that they're receiving or is it just the culture of prison in America? All right. So I'm going to back the camera up just a little bit more. I think that where this starts is at the very top. Most people, most elected officials do not care about probation and parole. They don't care all that much about prisons either, but at least prisons Somebody can sue over them. There's, you know, they cost a lot of money. So they care about them a little more. Probation and parole, I got to tell you, elected officials I've spoken to, I feel like the 15 minutes I spoke to them was the only 15 minutes in 10 years they spoke about probation and parole. So they don't care about it. They don't understand it. They don't know what's going on, right? They believe it's a slap on the wrist. They believe it's rehabilitative. What it really is is a risk-averse bureaucratic function by and large. That is the occasional probation officer that's really decent and goes the extra mile. But systemically, the job, I think, the communication that comes from on high from a governor or a mayor in most places is make sure this doesn't get me in trouble, right? They don't know what else to ask for of it. Make sure that you don't not revoke somebody on a technical violation and then that person goes out and does something wrong. 
So everybody from the commissioner on down to the frontline staff then is engaged in this very risk-averse process where, you know, Sierra, you might be okay to stay out. You know, you, you tested dirty and you missed a couple of appointments, but I know you're working hard and I know you got a family, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might make it, but I got to now gauge whether I want to bet my mortgage and my son's college tuition on Sierra not getting in trouble. And maybe I'm not going to take that bet. Maybe I'm going to violate you and you go to prison because you have messed up enough times in a very non-serious way. And if I take a chance on you and you do well, I get nothing for that. Nothing. Nobody gives me an attaboy, pats me on the back. But if you mess up and you go out and hurt somebody in a way that shows up on the front page of the newspaper, I lose my job. So you, you think about that over and over and over again. And even good people. I did a 19-person listening tour when I started running probation. And most of the staff were people of color. Most of the people on probation were people of color. And there was a lot of cognitive dissonance that fa- staff felt. They, there was enormous anxiety. They said, we practice fear probation here. We're fearful that something wrong will happen, so we imprison black people even when we shouldn't. And the, the, the morale was in the toilet. My predecessor had allowed staff to have guns, for example, to arm them so that they could protect themselves when they're out in the community, in, in their view. Seven staff had killed themselves in the seven years that they had had the guns, and none of them ever used the guns in the line of duty. So there was an enormous amount of, of depression and, and low morale because staff knew that what they were doing at some level was wrong. They were just covering their asses at the expense of somebody else's liberty, and that somebody else looked like them. And that I could never have told you from being on the outside. I, I didn't know that when I was an advocate. I, I had to go inside to learn that uh, uh, about how sort of nobody really cares about this from elected standpoint and, and, and how politicians are pushing this fear down onto, onto their staff at every level. Yeah. And th- that is so true. And I think that that's why we have mass incarceration because crime has always been looked at as a very bad thing. And instead of us trying to find the root cause of what's causing so much crime, we ki- we continue to put more punitive punishment on there. And so I think a lot of people are understanding that a lot of crime is due to the lack of resources, especially in the black and brown communities. We've never really, we've never had resources. Let's just be honest. We've never really had resources. We've always been below everybody else. And so I think that, I mean, let's just face it, prison and probation, all that is modern day slavery. And so I, they feel like they could make billions of dollars off of bodies that are incarcerated. And I think that that's one number one reason why our crime is so high and why we have so many people incarcerated and so many people that are wrongfully convicted. Because we look at body autonomy, like getting free labor out of people, out of, out of body, body autonomy. And so a lot of people don't like that, but because they need a job. And I hear a lot of correctional officers say, well, I get state benefits or this is my job and this is what I have to do. And instead of, and a lot of them, there's some of them who don't want to treat the people incarcerated or there's a lot of probation officers that don't want to violate their, their clients. But because we have put this, I say blindfold on America that we have to be punitive, tough on crime instead of trying to make sure that every community has the resources that they need to thrive and that we have enough activities, especially for the children, because I don't feel like there's enough resources and activities for the children, like big brother and big sister programs and making sure that they're getting adequate education, because we know that people of color don't get the adequate education. And if they do, they get labeled at schools with, you know, ADHD. And so that could, could, intend cause them to have behavioral issues. And so that's when you start getting labels on your name. And then that's how it pushes you to the prison population. But let's talk about the probation and parole, because that is another way that keeps people handcuffed to the system. It keeps them going back and forth to jail and prison because a lot of them can't afford to pay the fees that go on. And so you've done research on that. And I want you to 
talk to us about what did you find in your research? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, probation and parole both started in the in the U.S. context in the 1840s, and probation was meant to be an alternative to incarceration at the front end to stop people from going what to what was already being viewed as brutal prisons. Remember, the penitentiary was only a few decades old at that point, and already people were looking for alternatives. So probation was meant to divert people and to help rehabilitate them in the community. Two goals, right? Reduce incarceration, rehabilitate. Parole, same thing, but that was at the back end. You were in prison, and rather than staying the whole time in prison, you could earn your way out early by participating in programs and behaving well, but then you'd be out conditionally on parole, right? And then somebody would supervise you in the community. At first, both probation and parole were voluntary. They were volunteers that were supervising you, not paid probation and parole officers. They were community members. In the 70s, as I said, things took a turn for the harsher. And we started to be much more surveillance focused. We started loading conditions on that could revoke you and turn you back to prison. You couldn't associate with somebody else with a criminal record. You couldn't move without telling your parole officer. You couldn't stay out past curfew. You couldn't get a credit card without telling your parole officer, your probation officer, you had to get a job, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're taking all these poor people and mostly poor people on parole and probation, mostly poor, uh, who already didn't have the means to to navigate uh, the world, even as it was without all those conditions. And we're dumping a bunch of conditions on them that were very, very difficult to meet. And we started to have a trigger finger back into incarceration. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Kerry Lathan, right, comes out of prison after 25 years. Uh, his sister had gotten a donation from musician Nipsey Hussle in Los Angeles. Kerry uh, Lathan then was going to go to a funeral for a friend, decides to go to Nipsey Hussle's store to buy a shirt so that he's presentable at the funeral. Nipsey Hussle's there. He goes up to thank him for the donation, and that's the moment when somebody decides to shoot and kill Nipsey Hussle, and they injure Kerry Lathan in the process. So instead of his parole officer saying, how are you doing? You just got shot while you were innocently thanking somebody for donating clothes to you. His parole officer violates his parole because he was associating with a known gang member, Nipsey Hussle. And he, he goes to the Los Angeles, notorious Los Angeles County Jail in his wheelchair. Back in New York, Raymond Rivera uh, has missed some appointments and has left his drug treatment program without telling his parole officer. So his parole officer incarcerates him in a no notorious Rikers Island Jail. No new crimes for Raymond Rivera. And there he contracts uh, covid and is the first person to die of COVID in, in a Rikers Island jail. So this is not just two people by coastal. One quarter of everyone entering prison in America is coming in, not because they committed a new crime, but because they violated one of these non-criminal conditions of probation or parole. And that costs $2.8 billion a year. So, Instead of saying, how can I deploy $2.8 billion to rebuild and empower the communities these guys come from so that they can provide them with housing and they can help them kick their drug treatment problems and they can help them get educated and help them find a job, right? Instead of doing that, we take these guys out of their communities for non-criminal violations and we put that money into the carceral machine. And so that is what my book is about. And, and, and it discusses sort of many of the implications of that what you talked about, Sierra, was one of them, that in many, many places, because government doesn't want to pay for this, we actually charge the people on probation and parole to be supervised, which often results in them getting violated because they can't afford the fees and going to prison. Um, so there are many, many, many implications for this, uh, none of them good. And at the end of the day, we did an analysis of all 50 states over the last 40 years. We pulled the data for all 50 states over 40 years and said, okay, this is supposed to do two things. It's supposed to reduce incarceration and increase public safety. Does it do that when you control for all these other factors? The answer is no and no. 
It actually increases incarceration because people get violated for technical you know, conditions of their, of their probation and parole. And uh, it has no impact on public safety except for parole. And parole has a negative impact on public safety. The more people you have on parole, the worse your violent crime rate is. So that's about as a, a thorough failure as you could imagine. And then, you know, I discuss like, what do we do? What should we do about it? So what should we do about it? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a little equivocal about it. You know, on the one hand, I say we should reduce it to an to a irreducible minimum and make it less punitive, stop having people be able to get incarcerated for technical violations and turn it into a more helping function. And with the money we save, put it into communities. But I also suggest we should consider abolishing it and take a look at doing that in, for a few populations. So let's say people on misdemeanor charges. Some states have just very, they vary infrequently. New York City almost never puts somebody on probation for a misdemeanor. California puts people on probation, but doesn't, doesn't supervise them for misdemeanors. And no real impact, no negative impact, except they save all this money and they can, and they have in California, North, put that back into some programming. Virginia completely abolished parole supervision for four years from 1995 to 1999. And during those four years, crime went down in Virginia by 30%. So I think it's worth asking the question and studying serious reductions in, in the number of people under surveillance and even for some populations, abolition, as long as you're going to reallocate the money to do something good in their community. You can't just tell them to go forth and sin no more. Those communities deserve better. As you said, we've been disinvesting in those communities for decades mm -hmm. and you can't just dump the people back into those communities that are in prisons and jails and on probation and parole. You need to provide some help and you need to do it in a respectful way that helps people turn their lives around and contributes to public safety. I think all of that is doable. All of that is doable, but it seems like, especially in the South where you have the I don't know, the, the racist mentality, they feel like punitive punishment is the only way. And putting more cops on the street is the only way to keep the public safe. Um, in North Carolina, you know, we abolished parole in 1994. And now we have all these people that are currently incarcerated with life without parole, you know, with a sentence similar to life. And so, you know, we just changed the law to where juveniles are no longer charged with life or can get life without parole. And so we're trying to get them out. But we still have such large incarceration rate when people are on probation. And then you have the ones that committed crimes before 94 are just now getting out on parole. And so how do you change those mindsets and get them to understand that what we're doing is not working. Putting more people in prison is not working because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep people in prison. We just passed a law uh, to where people who are wrongfully convicted, it makes it harder for them to get out. And so our communities are suffering. North Carolina's, it's just going downhill because it's like we can't get them to understand that punitive punishment is not working, that bail is not working. It's keeping more people incarcerated. They're losing jobs, children and everything else. But it seems like we are content with warehousing children and young adults and middle-aged people and now elderly people because we're getting to the point where we're starting to put palliative care units in prison. And so we can't get away from that tough on crime, punitive punishment. So how do we get people in the South to understand that what you're doing is not working, even though you see the data from California and New York and I think Minnesota and like, so you see it from different places, but it's like, we can't understand that, that we need to be going in that direction. So how do we get them to try to understand that data and then it's real and then it works? I don't know. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, that's a really terrific and broad question. You know, like I said, I've been in this since 1980, so 43 years. And when I was first in it, there was, you couldn't fill a small room. Uh, you could fill a small room with the number of people, advocates, philanthropists, researchers who cared about this issue. This was just not an issue. And so I, I, I know I've been a little dismal so far. In this. I want to not be totally dismal. 
Because now there's like, there was never the incarceration show. There was nothing like this in the 1980s and 1990s. We were, the people who cared about this were alone, right? It was a couple of advocates and the family members and the people in prison. Those, those were the, that was it. And we were not organized. There was no money behind it in terms of philanthropy. And so things have improved. And prior to the pandemic, the number of people being locked up and the number of people being surveilled on probation and parole had declined pretty substantially. It's like down by 25%. It's still a crazy big number, right? And so it's hard to really feel that, especially if your loved one is serving a life sentence. But because it's declined now, we're starting to see some of the outcomes. So like one example I'll give is California, when, when there was a lot of research showing that the brains of young people don't mature until they're in their mid to late 20s, passed a law that gave early access to parole for people under who committed their crimes under the age of 25, and they applied it retroactively. And so we were able to take a look, like what happened? Because all these guys all of a sudden got out. They, they, they hit the streets. And unlike what some people would fear, crickets. There was no big increase in crime. There was, I mean, there were some years where one person got rearrested. And so it was like a one to 2% recidivism rate for thousands of people who came back out. And that's, that's tough to argue. It's tough to argue that the state of North Carolina should be spending millions and millions of dollars to incarcerate people well past when there's any chance of them realistically reoffending. And when they're starting to pay for palliative care for them, right, which costs fortune in prison. Now, this is not a great time. I mean, there was, we, were, we had the wind at our backs before the pandemic, but now elected officials of, you know, some of them, many of them are running scared on this issue because uh, of the uptick in crime. Crime's starting to come down in lots of places too, which is great as, as we get past the terrible effects of that initial you know, pandemic and, and the lockdowns and all of that stuff. So my hope is that with the, the the strong advocacy that's out there, with strong communications like this podcast, with the philanthropy backing it, that we'll get back uh, onto a plane where we are reducing both crime and incarceration. Because it's important to note, both came down simultaneously. And that really gives the lie to the notion that we needed to lock a lot more people up to be safe because we were locking a lot fewer people up and we were becoming safer and safer. So my hope is that between advocates, between you know uh, communication vehicles like this, between philanthropy, we will get back again to a point where we're able to push the envelope. And that's why I wanted to put this book out there so that people consider mass supervision as part of what they're advocating for. Because I think too many people forget about probation and parole because prisons are so terrible they rightly focus their advocacy there, but the prison, uh, probation and parole are uh, what one researcher called, in many cases, a delayed form of incarceration and not an alternative to incarceration. It's definitely not an alternative to incarceration. It's always going to be a delayed form because you can get violated for anything. Like you could be at a family member's house who has somebody or has a weapon. And they're not supposed to be there. And you know, they'll come in and because they have the, the right to search that property, even though, you know, you might just be staying there and your name is not on the lease. They still have that right to come in and search that property anytime and they can violate you anytime. On top of, I'm just hearing a lot of people can't pay for the electronics that they are, that they have to pay for it because you have to pay for your monitor. You have to pay, you know, if you are doing, if you're on supervised probation, you have to pay for that. And so just not being able to pay the fines and fees period is what's keeping people going back and forth, even when you, when it comes to bail. Some people, you know, they can't get out or if they get out and they don't show up to court because they're scared, then, you know, that money has gone to the court. And then of course they're going to go, you know, to jail and prison. And so understanding that that will never work. But I think that that is a big thing, especially in the South, because it's a moneymaker, like prison and jail and probation and bail is a moneymaker for the state. And so they don't want to divert from that because they've made so much money off of that for so many years. So it's, it's hard for them to understand that what we're doing is not working and understanding that the data that we're showing, because especially in North Carolina, they're trying to charge more 
juveniles as an adult. Like we just raised the age from charging a six-year-old child with a crime to 10, which I still don't think, I mean, a child's brain is definitely not developed at six. It's definitely not developed at 10. And then when it comes to males, a lot of times their brains are not fully developed until they're in their thirties. And so under really understanding that data, but it seems like in the South, they take that data and they just like, oh, well, you know, they just kind of push it to the side and say, we're going to keep doing what we're doing because we have a raise of crime. And so, and that's, it's a lot of uh, fear mongers that are saying crime is rising, which it is in some areas, but some areas is coming down, but that's not politicized. That's not shown that you do have a reduction in crime. It's not showing or, you know, uplifting the fact that a lot of the defer- deferment diversion classes in, in court are, is working. So you, it's still trying to feed people that, you know, prison is the way to go, incarceration is the way to go. And so trying to change that mind, especially in the South, will be a difficult hurdle, <laughs> it seems like. But I think that if we could get more support and other people coming from different states to talk to our officials and electives, which I don't know about the electives right now because they are on a whole other ideology and mission in North Carolina right now. Uh, but hopefully, you know, in the next election year, we can get people that are trying to see the other side of the coin and not just looking at the side they've been looking at for, for many, many years now. Um, so it's very important that we have people like you and um, people like Maurice Posley, who works for the National um, Registry for Exonerees. And the Marshalls Project and the prison policy that does this actual research and keeps showing the numbers that the old ways aren't working. The new ways is, is, is what's going to get us where we need to be, where we are putting our resources back into the community. Because if you're always resourcing your community, that crime will, you will have a low rate of crime. There will be no reason for nobody to commit a crime. If you make sure that you're giving them correct, holistic mental health care, because as we see, the pandemic has escalated a lot of people's mental health, like to the exacerbated. Yep. And so getting them the correct mental health the holistic mental health is a big thing that can also help deter crime. Because when your brain is not healthy, I don't think a lot of people understand. When your brain is not healthy, your body is not healthy. And your brain is the main controller of your emotions, of your, you know, when you think about things, your consequences, your actions. So you're, when your body is healthy, you are thinking in a conscious level. So you're able to reason with yourself and not be at an unconscious level and make decisions that will come back to harm you or haunt you. And so that's really important. That's what I'm really trying to push is the the mental health aspect, because I see a lot of people suffering from mental health. I see a lot of people that are getting mental health uh, treatment, but it doesn't seem like it's really helping. It's exacerbating a little bit more, especially with the medication. A lot of people tell me that the medication makes them more depressed, have more suicidal thoughts, and that in turn to make people commit crimes. So just really making sure that we have sustainable housing, sustainable wages, and good mental health and good just healthcare plans all together. Because a lot of people don't even have health. A lot of people go to jail so that they can get some type of health, so they can have somewhere to stay, so they can have free meals in a cot. And so that's what you get when you're desourcing your community. You're going to get people that want to, there's some people that want to go to prison because they don't have anywhere to live. Yep. Or they don't have, you know, means to feed themselves. So they feel like they'd be better in prison than out here on the street. And that's what happens when you de- de-resource your community. So understanding yep. that resourcing the community is a lot better than de-resourcing it. Yep. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. I'll give you one example. It touches on some of the things you just talked about. There's a guy named Thomas Barrett uh, in Georgia, right? And Georgia's got the most people on probation of any state in the country. Almost as many people are on probation in Georgia as live in Atlanta. And so misdemeanor probation is often run by private for-profit companies in Georgia. And it's about 100,000 people on misdemeanor probation in Georgia. So Thomas Barrett steals a can of beer from a, a grocery store. He was a pharmacist. He started using the drugs that he was dispensing became addicted, lost his job, lost his family, and was kind of hitting the skids. And so he was living in subsidized housing, 
was an alcoholic, untreated, not enough resources to treat him, steals a can of beer from the supermarket and gets arrested and is ordered to pay a fine. Doesn't have the money to pay a fine. So the judge says, okay, I'm going to order a payment plan, but you have to be on probation so that they can monitor your payments. And that probation is going to be private probation, right? So once it gets put on private probation, the private probation company immediately orders drug testing, even though that wasn't part of the court's order. And they put them on electronic monitoring, even though that wasn't a part of the court's order. And now cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. He's got to pay for the private company. He's got to pay for the monitor. He's got to pay for the drug testing. And he's got to pay his fine that he couldn't pay in the first place. So it all starts to stack up. He starts to sell his blood to for money so that he can pay all this stuff. He starts to skip meals because he can't afford those meals, which means that he's too weak to sell his blood. And it just all of a sudden becomes two months. I think the original fine was $100. He's now over $1,000 in arrears. And he, he tells the company, I, I can't do it anymore. So they violated and they locked him up for a year for stealing a can of beer. Now, so that's the bad news. The good news is that litigators down south, Civic, Civic Justice Corps, uh, the ACLU have been suing these private probation companies because they're doing this over and over and over again and they keep winning because you literally cannot, you're not supposed to be able to incarcerate somebody because they're too poor to pay, to pay a fine or a fee. There's so many of them doing it that it's taking time before you know enough of them get sued. But the company that was, uh, the private company there pulled out of Georgia. So they're no longer in Georgia anymore. So I don't want it only to be bad news. We need to continue to fight this and we need to continue to put pressure on this system to behave in a rational way. Because what I've described in the book and what we're talking about now is irrational. It is punishing people, mainly people of color, in ways that do not achieve another end of public safety. You could argue it wouldn't be great if we were doing this anyway, even if achieve public safety, because there's so many negative outcomes, but it's not even contributing to public safety. And so it's costing a lot of money and ruining a lot of people's lives. And the research we did showed zero connection to, to improving public safety, except like I said, for parole, which actually makes public safety worse. And so th- to me, this is kind of a moment where we need to really push on this issue. And there's, there's new groups and, and organizations like the Arnold Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust are funding advocacy and research. The Reform Alliance was established, and that was like Jay-Z and Robert Kraft, the guy that owns the New England Patriots, and Meek Mill, who was violated on probation 12 years after he got put on probation for popping a wheelie on a motorcycle. And that caused a lot of public awareness of probation and violations. So lots of bad news, but but some change in the winds, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah, because I know that California has started to rehabilitate and reform a lot of their laws. I know New York has. But let's talk about Rikers Island because I, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of people wanting Rikers Island shut down. But what do you feel about that? And how was it when you worked there? Because it's one of the largest jails slash prisons in, in America, basically. My seven months there were heartbreaking. Uh, you know, people were getting stabbed and slashed. They were dying at rates that were far too high. Um, any rate is far too high uh, to be dying in jail. Uh, staff was, uh, the morale was so low, about a third of my staff on some weekends were calling in sick. Uh, and what that meant was you had living units with that were dormitories, 50 people, you know, on beds right next to each other and no correctional officer. So every pillow and mattress I picked up, there was a, was a shiv underneath it. And I remember looking at one guy, you know, when I found a shiv under his pillow and he said, Hey man, give me a correctional officer. You can have my shiv, but until there's a CO in here, I need to protect myself. And so what that means is there's no more fistfights. Everybody pulls the shiv out and people get stabbed. So no, it was, it was truly, truly awful. And it has been awful for decades. It's not, this was nothing new. Advocates had gotten the, the, uh, city council and mayor agreed to close the facility, to close Rikers Island and open up four much smaller new jails 
in the neighborhoods near the courthouses. So if you were in the Bronx, you'd go to a Bronx jail rather than going all the way to Rikers Island, which takes about an hour and a half to get there uh, from the Bronx. And then you have to wait hours to get to see your loved one. Or if you're a lawyer, same thing. You spend the whole day to ask one 10-minute question. So they got the approval. Well, it's actually city law to close Rikers Island. And the uh, uh, jails have been cited. And they were in construction when I left at the end of 2021. Uh, I, I hear that Mayor Adams now is saying he doesn't think they'll be able to get the population down. You know, uh, it's not a soft on crime issue. It's a jail. Most of the people are just waiting to, you know, to get their cases resolved. Right. And some of them were waiting five years. There were a, quite a substantial number who were waiting more than a year. And the longer people waited, the more trouble they got in because it's it's just a jail. It's You're not supposed to be there two weeks, a month, not five years five years so you know really the solution a lot of people's like oh no we can't let them all go it's like it's not about letting them all go just move the system faster so that wherever they're gonna go they go sooner if that right. means they're gonna get their case dismissed let's get that done if that means they're gonna get probation let's get that done if that means they're gonna go to prison let's get that done let's just get it all done faster and then you could reduce the population and they could fit in the four jails that they're building but that's going to take leadership, and it's it's not it's not glorious stuff. It's getting under the sink with the wrench and the screwdriver, and that's just hard work. And somebody needs to do that hard work. The judges, I think, and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys would cooperate. They just need some city hall leadership to kind of sit them down, come up with a plan, and execute that plan. And then I do think Rikers can and should close. It's a terrible place and has been. As I said, for decades, there's no fixing it. And I think it needs a fresh start in some modern new jails. The f aside from all the other stuff I just said, culture, violence, all that stuff, the physical plant was devastating. There were 500 cell doors that didn't lock, that didn't lock. So the people could just bust them open. And if me and you were having a fight, we could have that fight in the middle of the night, or I could come in and do something, right? And when it rained, for days after it rained, there were puddles in all these different facilities because the roofs leaked. And they, a, they were at the point where they couldn't be fixed because they had been neglected for so long. So aside from all the culture reasons and the, it's a hard place to get to, never should have been a jail there in the first place. It should have always been near where people live so that they could see their loved ones, they could see their lawyers. The physical plant is devastated. And uh, they're they're going to have to spend billions of dollars on it anyway, and it's a waste to spend it out on Rikers Island. They should they should put it where it can do some good. Yeah, I'm starting to see a lot of jails that are just in poor condition, especially like the one in Fulton County where people are dying. Yep, they've had ten deaths already in the span of months, and so I what I do is I encourage people to always get involved with your budget. Because I need people to understand that the money that they're using is your taxpaying dollars and that the power is in the people and that we have to steer them where we want our taxpaying dollars to go and not going into the jails. And if they are going into the jails, you need to make sure that they're modern jails, they're updated, they have exactly what they need. Because nobody should have to live in any type of nasty, sure. disgusting conditions while they're in jail. Because basically you you have your Innocent until proven guilty. So you have to live in a very disgusting, inhumane conditions while you're waiting to go to trial. And, and now I'm starting to see a lot of people are sitting in jails for three and four and five years. I saw one guy was in there for 10 years before, um, and there had to be advocates that had to get on that for them to drop the charges. And so I need for prosecutors to understand that if you don't have the, the sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt evidence, it's okay to drop the charges. But I think because for years we've given them so much backlash over you let this person out and you let them off and they went made another crime that we have politicized the tough old crime. And that's how a lot of the DAs are getting reelected because they're saying, well, look how many people are prosecuted. Look how many people, you know, with felony murders or, you know, with murders that I've prosecuted. And so we feel like they are keeping us safe when they're not. That's not keeping us safe. That has never kept yeah, us safe. I think that's right. Um, 
And so making sure, and what's crazy to me is I was in a pretrial course and we had Fulton County in that pretrial course. And they had, to me, they had way more diversion classes than a lot of the different states. I know Minnesota has some. So I'm wondering why are so many people in the Fulton County jail when they had, she said they even had diversion for if you had firearm by felon, possession of firearm by felon. So if you have all these diversion classes, why are so many people still incarcerated in the Fulton County Jail? You know, it's interesting that you, you asked that question. It's, I think that there's two parts to this is how many people come in, which diversion speaks to, and how long they stay, which we which you mentioned just now, right? And so you can you can divert out a bunch of people that would stay two weeks, but if the length of stay for everybody else doubles then you really, it was a net loss, right? And one of the things that I found was uh, that I didn't know before I came in, before I was actually running a jail, was that this mattered a lot to me as, as correction commissioner. It mattered a lot to obviously the families and the people who were incarcerated, right? And to my staff, it mattered a lot to them. And we had no control over it. And then the people who have control over it, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and judges, it kind of doesn't matter to how long somebody stays in a jail. It's not, it's not on top of their minds like the most important thing I got to worry about is that the lengths of stay are getting longer and longer and longer and people are getting more violent in jails. It's not like they don't care about it at all. It's just not one of their priorities. Their priorities are, can I prove this case? Can I get my client acquitted? Am I, am I following due process if you're a judge? You know, so that things are fair. And so that's why I'm saying it. It really does need political leadership, Fulton County, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, you name it, so that the people who are on this part of the system, which is essentially the mayor, right, or the county executive, need to get the people who are on that part of the system, the judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, to understand why this is important, what kind of impact it has on the individuals going through the system, what kind of impact it has on the jails. Because uh, none of them want this, right? The judges don't want the terrible stuff that's going on in the Fulton County Jail to continue. They're just not prioritizing. And it I, I really does need the kind of leadership that only kind of a mayor can bring to it or a county exec to get everybody in the room and say, all right, let's talk turkey. How can we make stuff happen quicker? I've seen some judges who have really taken a lead on this and they come in and they say, okay, how long? Do you need to prepare your case? I need a month. No way. This shouldn't take a month. I was a prosecutor once. You need to get going in two weeks or whatever. And they really kind of, you know, people accountable to standards. There are standards for how long a case should take. It's just their voluntary standards. So everybody just ignores them. But if you hold people accountable to those standards, the Fulton County jail population, the New York City jail population, Los Angeles populations around the country would decline. And that's neither here nor there in terms of public safety because it's going to happen anyway. Whatever's going to happen in two months can happen in a month or two weeks. Then the population of jail goes down and justice is served in a more quick fashion, which is, I think, the way it should be. Yeah, I, I think so, too. But I think that we are starting to get on the right track. We just have to continue to push the other states to the right track. And get them to understand that we are harming our community more than we're helping our community. So last thing I want to talk about, what are your thoughts on the Norway? We've really been studying the Norway model um, and trying to see if I, I've heard that California is trying to implement that in San Quentin. What, what are your thoughts on the Norway model? Because I know, you know, in a lot of different countries, their prison, the way that they run their prisons is nothing like how they run them over here. They have a lot of family contact. Their rooms are more like, you know, a room in your house is not, you know, or, or a concrete cell with a, a metal bed and a, a thin mattress and a paper thin pillow. You know, you have actually like a living space. You have a, a nice little window. I know in Norway they have, um, they actually have full kitchens in there. They don't use solitary confinement. How, how do you think that that would work over here? The other thing that's interesting about Norway, and I've been to Finland and Norway and Germany, is that the population in, in their prisons are in for much more violent stuff. 
So people go there and think, well, it's just a bunch of, you know, sort of lightweights. No way. Opposite. Because all they don't lock up the less serious folks f- that are locked up for less serious stuff. They don't, they don't get in their prisons. So when you go to those prisons and you ask people, like, what are you in for? It's always some nasty stuff. So it's not like there's a bunch of nonviolent offenders, quote unquote, in there that get to have a nice bedroom. It's the, it's the harshest folks, the, the folks in for the harshest stuff that actually get treated with decency and humanity. And I think, I think that is, or at least should be, the future of our prison system in America. Like To the degree we need to have people who are incarcerated, and people argue about whether we do or not, I certainly think that it, if we do, it's way less than we have now, that at the end, what we should have is decent and humane facilities that any of us would feel like if your own son or daughter were in it, that they were being treated with decency. And I think that needs to be our standard. Mm -hmm. When I had the juvenile justice system in DC, the best system in the country was in Missouri. And so I sent my staff to Missouri. They saw people, staff treating the kids decently. Staff were wearing regular clothes. Kids were wearing regular clothes. We called them by their first name. Their beds were regular beds. They had bedspreads on them. They were working in the kitchens as part of their work and there were knives in the kitchen. You know, all these things that in other systems are like, oh no, we have to have these ugly gray blankets and they have to be bolted to the walls and the kids have to wear uniforms and we can't have them working in the kitchen and all these rules. They upended them in Missouri. And when my staff saw that, and then we brought some of the people from Missouri to help us think it through in Washington, D.C., we were able to do all of that stuff. We were able to have wooden beds and the kids were wearing khaki shirts, uh, you know, collared shirts and khaki pants. And it looked like, you know, like they were going to a good school, not to a prison. And mm-hmm. the staff were, and them were calling each other by their first names. All that stuff. You mentioned earlier how staff are trained not to have relationships. Staff are literally trained not to have relationships because in a very correctionalized system, when you start to have a relationship, it turns south right? There's sexual stuff, there's drugs that get transacted. But if you flip that and say, no, we all should have relationships and they should be grown-up relationships mm-hmm. with boundaries, right? Not that you engage in bad stuff, but that you treat a person like a human being, like, again, you'd want your own loved one to be treated if they were in that situation, then staff can manage to do that. They can understand that. And when we trained them and when they saw the outcomes of it, which was way less tension, way less fights, way more rehabilitation than they bought into it. So that's, in my view, what they do in Norway and, and, and Finland and Germany and some of these other countries. Can we do that here? Of course we can. And I think, I think San Quentin, which you mentioned earlier, which now has this whole panel of folks, uh, of real terrific experts, you know, sort of rolling up their sleeves and trying to figure out how do we do this in America and the United States I think they're going to be, in many respects, the, the canary in the coal mine for this. Yes, I, I really think. And I'm glad that a, a state has decided to try that Norway model to understand that working relationships will help their incarcerated. Because in, in Norway, they said that by them having a working community relationship with the correctional officers, they feel like it gives them hope. It gives them support because a lot of people in prison don't have family. Family has passed away or some family have just disowned them because they're in prison. And so that gave them a sense of hope. And I don't think people understand when you give somebody a little bit of sense of hope, like that can change the whole dynamic and everything for them. And so having a working relationship with the staff is extremely important. Adding in the family dynamic is extremely important because we feel like because you're incarcerated, you shouldn't, you know, have contact with your loved ones but once a week and you know, for a short limited time, because families bringing in their own excuses, families bringing in drugs and contraband. And that's not always true. But understanding that family value and having a sense of hope and connection in a space like that can just change things. And then, like you said, how the children were able to sit down and talk about their problems instead of just going at one another's necks and stabbing one another. And so we have a lot of that in our prison where people are just stabbing one another. They're oppressing one another. 
They're, you know, they have violence against staff. They have violence against one another because that's what they see. That's all in their environment. So they're just reacting to what they see on a daily basis and just trying to get them to understand that humanization is extremely important and that that can help carry people a lot, a long way that can keep people out of the carceral system once they come in the carceral system. And Norway believes that you know, train them with dignity and that their person and with sympathy and communication and empathy is important, not punitive punishment, because punitive punishment doesn't get down to the root cause of why they're there. A lot of people are there because, you know, they didn't have family support or they grew up, you know, their lifestyle that they grew up in wasn't the best. And so they're just acting out for attention. And some people have, a lot of people have mental health issues. And so taking care of those two things I think can really turn around the way that corrections is done and just having working relationships with the community, the advocates, the um, politicians or mayors. But a lot of that, that communication is broken and everybody's working in a silo. And so I say all the time, we have to stop working in silos because we're never going to get anything accomplished at all for working in silos. We have to work together to mask the problem that we have. You know, CPS is becoming a problem that I'm seeing. It's starting to send a lot of kids, you know, to different families. And I read that, I think it said 80% of children that are involved in foster care will be involved in corrections. Yeah. You know, and so stopping the school to prison pipeline, stopping the CPS to prison pipeline, because that's a pipeline too. I don't think people understand that. And just giving the support that each community needs can really take down the crime and the amount of people we have incarcerated and having the politicians understand that your community can thrive, your economy can thrive as long as everybody else is thriving. Because when only a certain population is thriving, then the rest of the population is, is not going to thrive and then that, that's going to cause problems. And so we have to make sure that we have whole healthy communities to keep them out of crime and out of the way of the police. No, I totally agree. We, you know, we've had a broken correction system for far too long, and that includes community supervision, probation, and parole. And sometimes there's a, a tendency to want to just focus on making the bad system less bad, uh, and 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 it should be right. We shouldn't treat people harshly. We should shouldn't lock people up for technical violations, to be sure. But we need to do the other side of that system, which is we're putting a ton of money into this ineffective system with stark racial disparities and lousy outcomes. As we undo that, which we should, we need to make sure we invest in communities in a way that empowers people in those communities to think of what their own version of safety and their own version of thriving is. Otherwise, we'll only do have done half the job. And, and I think I think we'll do a disservice if that's where we end up. And that's what I try to get at with my book, Mass Supervision. Well, Vince, this has been a very fruitful conversation. And I thank you so much for sharing your expertise, actually, from somebody who has worked in that system. Because, you know, I we've had a lot of guests, but actually having somebody that has worked in that system and also has worked on the other side as an advocate you give great insight to how it can be changed because you have worked in that system. And so I hope that, you know, the officials that are listening, I hope that they can can take note to insight to what you're saying because you have experienced that and you have experienced how making a difference has changed a lot of different, you know, like you're in Maryland now, right? Yes. So, and how has that changed in Maryland since you have become a part of the juvenile justice system in Maryland? We're still at the very beginning stages. I'm seven plus months in, uh, but we've already started to do things like just some small things, some big things. Small things is staff need to call the kids by their first name, <laughs> you know, right? Say that uh, again. <laughs> crazy. It's just a crazy correctional thing to call somebody Sheraldi instead of Vinny. Like it's a, kid, it's a kid, you know, after school programs, the kids were just playing spades and Xbox after school was over. Uh, so we launched a bunch of after-school programs. We have the kids out in the community as well on aftercare and case management. So this summer, we just did a whole bunch of things ranging from service programs to like planting trees and working 
at the the community centers and things like that, but also fun stuff like bike riding and hiking and fishing uh, just to keep kids occupied in a healthy way so they don't sort of drift into some of that negative stuff. Uh, Staff is really leaning into it. Most staff, obviously, there's always going to be some people that are outliers, but uh, staff is buying into it. and And I think the families are buying into it. The kids are buying into it. So like my facilities now, kids can go off grounds for activities. And recently, a bunch of kids from one of my correctional facilities went and built a deck with Habitat for Humanity on the back of a woman's house who was running a nonprofit daycare center. And the deck was falling apart so the kids couldn't play outside. I'm telling you, when I go to that facility, there's pictures of that all over the place. The kids like banging and getting sweaty and stuff like that, banging nails. And they talk about it. The kids could tell you about it. There's a sense of pride that they did that. And it, as you said earlier, if young people and, and old people too, I don't want to just make this about young people. If, if all people have hope, uh, they'll be in a lot better shape than if we take that hope away. And I think mass incarceration and mass supervision, are they suck the hope out of people. And we need to not forget that that kind of hope is super important as we look to end mass incarceration and end mass supervision. That is so true. That That is absolutely true. And I love what you said. That is exactly what I've been trying to get people here to understand that if you're giving them productive things to do, that that keeps them out of trouble because it's stimulating their brain in a good way, not in yeah. a bad way. When they don't have brain stimulation, that's when they tend to go out here and get in things that they shouldn't get involved in things that they shouldn't. So making sure that we are having resources for our children. I say that all the time. They need more resources. And I think that if we give them the correct resources, we can keep them out of the system. We give the older people the correct resources, we can keep them out of the system. So you're absolutely right. But thank you again, Vincent. Please tell people where they can follow you, where they can buy your book. I would love for you to come and speak to our correctional staff and some of our legislators. But I would love love for that to happen. We'll have to get that together because your insight is very important and I want it to be heard. But yeah, tell people how they can buy your book and, and follow you and get in touch with you if they need to. Great. Well, the book's name is Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. And you can get it on the New Press's website. If you just go on thenewpress.com, uh, that's where you can get that. And I am on the 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 thing formerly known as Twitter, uh, X now, at at Vin Chiraldi. That's at, which is, and then Vin, V-I-N, and Chiraldi, S-C-H-I-R-A-L-D-I. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's where you got to do it. Uh, other than that, I'm not that big a social media guy. Sorry. <laughs> I, understand, I understand. I'm on LinkedIn too, and I have no idea how to follow me on LinkedIn, but that's my name there. You can probably look it up. And I will include all that information in the notes so that Thanks they can you. just click, you know, and go to your book and be able to buy it. But thank thank you you again. I hope to have you on again. And I hope to have you come to North Carolina eventually and kind of help guide us in the right direction. But thank you again. Thank you very much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You too. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.